Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. As we wind down our Melvin Van Peebles series, I am incredibly honored to welcome today's guest. Alfred Pricer is an acclaimed theater director, writer, and producer based in New York City. He has staged over 60 productions in the U.S. and Europe. His work has been recognized with the American Theater Wing Award for Outstanding Artistic Achievement, the Drama Desk Award, an Edwin Booth Award, Lucille Lortel Award, and two Obie Awards. He was the founding artistic director of the Classical Theater of Harlem and was named the first artistic director of the Harlem School of the Arts. Now, on a personal level, he is the man who gave me my first break as an actor. After directing me in a student production of Macbeth, the Stella Adler Studio of Acting, he was kind enough to cast me in his 2009 production of Caligula Maximus at La Mama Experimental Theater Company, and again in the acclaimed play, The Man Who Ate Michael Rockefeller. But I am speaking with him today because Alfred was a longtime collaborator and friend of the late Melvin Van Peebles. He directed the 2006 revival of Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, and he worked with Melvin on the 2010 theatrical version of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song at the Sans Divers Festival in Paris. He also acted in Melvin's final film, 2008's Confessions of an Ex-Doofus Itchy-Footed Mother. Ladies and gentlemen, Alfred Preiser, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here. It's been a long time. It's good to see you again. And before you say things like, uh, I was kind enough to cast you in those plays, I want to let everyone know that you're probably the only actor in the world who can say that your first professional efforts were playing Michael Rockefeller and Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, that was just an incredible time. And and you made it possible. I mean... It was fun, no doubt. Now, my first question is just, how did you first meet Melvin? Well, okay. Um, I was doing a play called Dream on Monkey Mountain, and the musical director was William Spaceman Patterson. And this was a time when Classical Theater of Harlem was doing a lot of kind of uh, ambitious classics like The Blacks, like Dream on Monkey Mountain, And like Melvin's play, uh, these are plays that hadn't been seen in New York in over 30 years, and they were big, ambitious, very theatrical, and uh, I thought perfect for the theater at that time. And I started talking to William, who goes by the name Spaceman. I started talking to Spaceman about, I'd heard about this play, and he said, well, I know Melvin. And he, uh, he gave me Melvin's phone number, and I called Melvin, and Melvin said, come over, And um, now at this point, I had never read the play, but I had begun to tell people that I was going to do it in New York. And this is Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. I didn't have the rights to it. I hadn't met Melvin yet, and I hadn't read it because the play is difficult to to find. It's not anthologized. And uh, the, uh, the version that he did based on Gilbert Moses' Broadway production was not in print. So Spaceman gave me Melvin's number, which was also in the phone book, (laughs) <laughs> and I went and I visited Melvin. And I ended up hanging out with Melvin for several hours. 
at his home, which was at the Park Vendome on West 56th Street. And we really just hung out and talked about everything. The first time I met him, I ended up talking to him about my father and how I got into theater in the first place and what I loved and what I hated. And it was like I'd known him for a long time. But he was that kind of raconteur. He was the kind of person who really was interested in people, took a really deep and sincere interest in people, unless he didn't like you, in which case the opposite was the case. But uh, <laughs> that's how I met him. And he had all of these wonderful things in his apartment, the, uh, the book that uh, he had done based on Gilbert Moses' production with all the stage directions written out in novel form. He had the original plans of the, uh, the architectural plans of the set. He had promotional materials. He had photos from the original production. And they all came out of this walk-in closet that he had in his home. And uh, he decided then and there that, yeah, he was going to let me do the play. And off we went. That, that's how I met Melvin. And we were close uh, right from the beginning. And he started to come up to see work that we were doing uptown. He visited the theater. And uh, he was a, a great help. And maybe we'll get around to that later because I was warned by many people that he wouldn't be and that he'd be difficult. But at every step along the way, he was the exact opposite. He helped, he helped with the play on so many levels. He helped raise money. He came to many of the productions. He helped with the promotion more than I can even calculate. And uh, when we broke down the set... He was there to help us take down scenery. And I, <laughs> that was just the kind of thing that uh, he loved doing. That's and incredible. It is incredible. There were nights he was at the theater and we were shorthanded because we weren't very, we were good artists perhaps, but we weren't very good at the administration or the nuts and bolts of running a, a theater and a venue. We, we, we were chaotic, I admit it. The, me and my producing partner at the time, Chris McElroan. And there were even nights that Melvin took tickets while we ran around the place troubleshooting the electrics or the sound or the, you know, the various things that popped up and became problems in this kind of little beat up but wonderful theater on 141st Street in St. Nicholas. So about the production of Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death. Now, this is the first time that it was staged since... 71 so 35 years mm -hmm. you know how did you get this thing mounted and then what was the reception to the play in 2006 uh, as to how i got it mounted i don't really remember uh, i remember i think i passed out after one note session in tech week because i couldn't sleep and i thought i had messed up the whole thing and that uh, it was just going to be a train wreck and we had enormous problems with sound we had enormous problems getting the set finished uh, with the budget that we had. And so I don't really remember how I put it together. I do remember that I had exceptional actors, exceptional young actors, you know, great training, great attack of the material, you know, embraced the material, loved Melvin. I had a choreographer named Bruce Heath who understood the play and the style extremely well. And, uh, you know, the cast and, and, and Bruce Heath helped me out enormously. Uh, the reception was immediately, it was a great reception because 
Although the play hadn't been seen for 35 years, I found that there were many, many, many people who loved it, absolutely loved it. And as a matter of fact, I became interested in the play because Garland Thompson, who was the artistic director of the Frank Silvera Writers' Workshop at the time, I had brought him to HSA, Harlem School of the Arts, to teach a master class on the black theater movement of the 60s and 70s. And he asked me, well, what do you want me to teach? And he, he was uh, in the business 25 years longer than I, had knew everything about African-American theater, its writers, its actors. And I said, well, you teach what you, you think sh you should teach. I'm not going to tell you what to teach. Just having you here is, uh, is a tremendous resource for our students. And so he brought in a film that was the history of the black arts movement. And when people talked about Melvin's play in this film, it was as if they were talking about an event that had changed their life. Their eyes lit up. They smiled. They were talking about an event that was like a, a, a sea change <laughs> for them in, in American theater. And because we ran the company so recklessly at that time, that was enough to make me want to announce the play as being something that we were seeking to do, even though I hadn't read it yet. But just based on the, based on, based on the reaction of people like Garland and other people that I knew in, in the theater community, I just felt like it was perfect. Uh, and again, the company was run in a very reckless and often foolish manner, but uh, always artistically true and artistically sound so so the response to it was enormous wow and we we filled every seat in that theater added seats uh, added weeks and it was actually the first show where when we did the extension we wrote equity uh, contracts for the actors everyone had been doing equity showcase up to that point and melvin's play marked the transition to really a professionalized theater where the actors were on union contracts. And for those of you who, who aren't familiar with the business nature of New York theater, for the actors involved, that is a huge deal, and that is a, that is a major achievement of, of this production. Yeah, and a major achievement for any play uh, in our day and age that has 19 or 20 actors in it. Let me ask you this. What do you think Melvin saw in you and saw in this production that got him excited and mm -hmm. involved? Uh, he just, he liked me. And we had a, a session at Melvin's house at the Park Vendome where the actors came to meet him. And uh, an excellent young actor named Youssef asked Melvin point blank, what do you think about Alfred directing this play? And obviously the implications were clear. I, I think I might have been the only white person in the room. Uh, and there I was directing his play. And Melvin said, and I remember these words word for word, Melvin said, Alfred has sense. And um, I guess that was enough to win the day. And, but also, you know, I talked to Melvin the entire time. There wasn't a single day I didn't talk with Melvin about what was going on in the theater. And uh, as I said, uh, I, I introduced every single actor to Melvin at his home uh, so, that, uh, so that he could talk to them about the play. And uh, the, he, he was just, he was glad to see it. And he was glad to see those young actors embracing it. 
That's incredible. What um what was your familiarity with his work before meeting him? I knew it on a kind of a legendary basis. Uh, of course, I'd heard of the film Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Actually, I had not only heard of the film, uh, I had directed a film with students a few years earlier, Panther Women, which was about the women of the Black Panther Party. Part of the research was that, uh, you know, Sweetback was a film that the that the Panthers wanted their new recruits to watch. Of course. And so I watched that film, and I made the great mistake of asking my students to watch it. Uh, I'm talking about high school age uh, actors, uh, <laughs> all, all women, uh, and uh, I meant. <laughs> I mean, if if I'd done it anywhere in the last five or six years, I suppose I would have been fired on the spot. But uh, but that's how I became uh, familiar with that particular film. And uh, I had heard about uh, uh, Ain't Supposed to Die, A Natural Death. I think most people kind of knew the title, and everyone knew the name Van Peebles. But I think more because of Mario, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, but my my familiarity was not great. But as soon as I went to Melvin's house that day and began talking with him, it became in depth and very personal. We we will have spoken about on the show the the, the vignette structure of "Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death" and how it was based on Melvin's music. So, what was your approach to weaving together these vignettes, and what was your approach to staging the play? Uh, well, my approach was to do a lot of improv- improvisation in between the, the individual step-outs. And Melvin didn't like that. And uh, it, it, was a, it was the one bone of contention between the two of us. Although, I must say, at a certain point, he would step off and not say, you got to do it this way because that's the way it's done. And, uh, and my approach was to work really, really closely with William Spaceman Patterson and to lean on... Bruce Heath, an amazing choreographer, you know, amazing theater artist, and uh, to work with actors that I knew. Almost everyone in that cast uh, were actors that were either working with me previously or working on my staff. I was directing the theater program at the Harlem School of the Arts at the time. That's how we established a theater residency at the theater on St. Nicholas Avenue. And I just had a really, really good, really uh, uh, aggressive and creative uh, production team, top to bottom. Was there any discussion about how the songs and the impact, I'm thinking of a, a, you know, a moment like I put a curse on you, like had changed over the 35 years, like how that would have resonated in 1971 versus 2006? Yes. Uh, yes, there was. And the other thing I asked people to do was go to Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts and look at the Tony Award ceremony from the year that, that uh, Ain't Supposed to Die was nominated. I think it was nominated in at least seven categories. I yes. don't remember how many. But they allowed the production, I think, five of the 19 numbers. Yes, the longest ever The longest ever, yeah. In the history of the Tony Awards. And... and uh, it was introduced by Peter Ustinov yes. in his tux. And when it was over, the audience kind of applauded. <laughs> it it, it ended do. with Minnie Gentry doing Put a Curse on You to a, a Tony Award audience in 1971 or two. I, I'm not sure exactly what year that was. And, and, uh, 
and, and that was extraordinary. And yeah. then they cut to, to uh, Fonda, Henry Fonda. I said, well, you can see that Broadway is where it's all happening today. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just, just absurd. Just go look at, at the, you know, how this was received in the, in the industry in 1971. And then, you know, think about what these things mean to you. It's very personal to all of the actors. There was a lot of discussion of that, particularly over things like uh, the Frogs number, where the, the white boxer and the black boxer duke it out. Or the um, the scavenger lady—that's what the char- character is called—who who curses the audience for having enjoyed these picaresque vignettes of ghetto life. Uh, just an extraordinary moment. So there was a lot of that uh, conversation going on, and we would often stop uh, rehearsals and let the actors talk among themselves. It was very important. Was there any input that Van Peebles gave to you, or any? Uh, ideas that sort of really stuck with you um, from that production? <laughs> uh, not really. <laughs> we we talked about life all the time, and we talked about the piece all the time. And he had one major, you know, problem with the way I directed, which was that I had a lot of things going on at the same time. And there were a million things going on on the block in every corner. Mm. And he worried that it would be distracting. He worried that the improvisational work that we were using to bridge the numbers would be distracting. And I remember him saying, you know, no one says, I got to go to the toilet in, uh, in Hamlet uh, in between <laughs> soliloquies, which is <laughs> true enough. Um, but, but the main problem he had with my work was that I often had actors with their backs to the audience. And he just wanted it to be more presentational hmm. and to be more pointed right at the audience. But the way we had approached that was more like a happening with people all over the place living their life on the block. And so it was a point of contention, but uh, he, he didn't ever tell you how to do things other than it's like, I don't want to see anyone's back anymore. Um, and... <laughs> and and he was like, that's acting 101. And I'd say, well, I'm doing acting 102. Uh, <laughs> um, it's shifting a little bit. So you guys, you know, you're talking about that you're just talking about life with him. You know, one of the things that from an outsider's perspective, you know, I'm getting him through the interviews where he has distilled his life into a series of jokes, catchphrases, and sort of like set stories. Um that are very funny and like play great in an interview setting. But what was your, you know, what, where was the common ground that you were finding? What are some of the, are there any things that, you know, you would feel comfortable sharing of like that stuck with you that you guys spoke about like in that time? And what was your just sort of emotional impression of a man kind of behind the, the catchphrases and the jokes? Well, he was one of the most interesting men I've ever known. He was a great conversationalist and he had a, uh, a great talent for getting into your business and getting you to talk about things. I, like I told you, I talked to him about my father, my relationship to my father, uh, which is something I never talked to my father about. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but he had this kind of ingratiating and very sincere curiosity uh, about people and the, and the ability to get to know them very well in a very short time. And I think that was because Melvin was a guy and his last film, Itchy-Footed Doofus, uh, had a lot of this in it. He was a guy who was 
always kind of on the hoof. You know, he he left Chicago, and he went uh, into. I think he went into the Navy and then Air he, Force. Air uh, Force. He, he went into the Air Force. He was a. I think he was a. A navigator, a navigator, uh, and on, a, on a bomber. Yeah, uh, he traveled all over the world. He went to Paris. He went to L.A. Uh, he was a restless soul, and uh, I was a, that as well. You know, I, I, I had been in a lot of different places and been in a lot of different experiences and a lot of a lot of kind of adventurous things. That the, actually the job that I had at Harlem School of the Arts, leading the theater department was the first real job I'd ever had because I was an itinerant actor and, you know, knockabout person. I'd acted in Europe. I'd acted all over New York. I'd acted regionally. Uh, I'd, I'd been to different places looking for, I don't know, what do we look for when we come to New York uh, in this business? And uh, we had some kind of kindred spirit, so that's, that was why it was easy for us to talk. That makes total sense. Mm. Um, I can definitely, definitely see that. I've heard that Melvin kept a pretty regimented schedule. Like when it was work time, it was work time. And then he would be off. I don't know if he was still running at this point, because I know he was a marathon runner at some point. Yeah. Was that your impression? Or, or did you did you experience that sort of regimented schedule of his? Or did he did you always feel that you were sort of, his time was open to you in the production? Well, he was very regimented when it came to running and working out. And... Uh, among the things that he he told me was that when he was young, he had decided that the that the white man in the United States would take twenty or twenty five years off of his life, and that he was going to live in a way that would stop that from happening, and so that's why he was very very disciplined about working out and about uh, and about running. We spent a lot of time in uh, the bedroom of his apartment at the Vendome, which had a weight bench and free weights and, and a television and a bed. And that was it. It was like a monk's cell. And, uh, and I looked at the free weights that he had, and it was no joke. And this was Melvin already in his early 70s, or even mid 70s, you know, really going at it and still and still running every day. I remember while we were looking for additional funds to take the, the play to Broadway, he had a, an appointment with someone at, at the Lincoln Center. And we were walking up Ninth Avenue, and we were only in the 30s at that time. In the, in the 30s, meaning the, the streets. Yeah, the 30s. We, we were far from Lincoln Center. Yes. And he had an appointment with, with Bernard Gersten, who was the, in charge of Lincoln Center. And he says, oh, shit, it's, I got to be there in 10 minutes. And without a word, he just took off running. <laughs> and I, I watched him just, you know, zoom up Ninth Avenue until I couldn't see him anymore in the crowd. And and uh, he was very, he was very fit, and he was he was uh, he was a character. Um, I'm curious. Was there any? Did you speak to anybody that um, came to see your production of Ain't Supposed to Die that had been to the '71 production? I spoke to many people. And most of them sought me out. Um, that would include people like Garrett Morris. Uh, I got a call from an actor in Oakland that I knew uh, warning me about Melvin, uh, saying that he had done it in Oakland back in the day and, and uh, his royalty check was late and, 
I, I don't think I'm chatting this out because Melvin wasn't very embarrassed about these kind of things. He said, Melvin put a contract on my life because the, the uh, royalty check was late. So be careful. And another actor, very well-known actor, still living in New York live, and living in uh, like the boundary of Harlem and Washington Heights at that time, told me the same kind of story. Uh, warned me that Melvin carried a gun. And, and other people who were in the original production would just would walk into the theater during the day because they'd heard about it. And this, this happened both before and during the run uh, because they wanted to see the set. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came to the show. Uh, you know, all kinds of people that we hadn't been able to get interested in our work just showed up out of a fascination and a love either for Melvin or for the memory of what this show meant in the 70s. So I wasn't really seeking people out, but uh, people wanted to know. And, and uh, one actor that I talked to quite a lot, uh, Arthur French, who was in the original production, he, he did Just Don't Make No Sense. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he talked to me at length about his experiences doing it and how when he saw the original script, the 19 pages of, of uh, poems, song lyrics with no stage directions, his thought was, well, this will be interesting and it'll run for a couple of days and, <laughs> and go by. He, he had no inkling that it would be a, you know, this kind of cultural phenomenon. So many of the actors from the original production came to talk to me about the product or just came to see it and then you know would would uh, stay afterwards to ask about why we were doing this and and uh, and even to say you know it, it's just good to see it again now I have to ask when you hear these warnings about Melvin first of all what did you think second of all did you t mention this to Melvin uh, not until after the the initial run was over, and it and it was a joke. And by then, Mel and I were very close friends. But uh, you know, as you've worked with me, I'm a fairly neurotic person to begin with. <laughs> uh, I obsess over my work, don't sleep much, and and uh, let's say wound tight. And so, obviously, you know, these things had me. <laughs> these had had these uh, warnings had me had me thinking, you know, had me in my thoughts. But they were very different from the experience I was having with the with the man himself. You know, he was sweet. He was helpful. He introduced me to the man whose house we're in right now, uh, who came in and helped uh, finance the show. He introduced me to Gerald Schoenfeld, and I'd been trying to meet Schoenfeld. Uh, for for a while and we walked into his office and walked out with enhancement money uh, 30 minutes later i'd been trying to meet the man for years and melvin made a call i i think we were sitting in his kitchen at this kitchen table having coffee and i was telling about well that might be a, someone who would you know offer enhancement money to a project like this and he picked up the phone and called him and said let's go over there and Melvin's place was at 46th Street. You know, Schoenfeld's place was in, in the theater district on, you know, I, I think 46th Street around there. Uh, and uh, we walked over there and we walked out with a, with a $25,000 check for enhancement money. So that was the experience that I was, the, the most wonderful, helpful, proactive 
writer I've ever worked with. And I, that, I wasn't having the, you're going to get shot experience. <laughs> the individual I worked with was a great artist and a great friend. And the warnings that I received about him being uh, someone who might be difficult or someone who, who did those kind of things and, and who was very, uh, very uh, involved in his material... That he he wasn't that with me, yeah. uh, although he was he wanted the material to be done right. Yeah, uh, don't get me wrong. He was he was opinionated and he was proactive, and he had no problem, you know, making his m- making his opinion heard. In your conversations, did he ever reflect back on his earlier career? Did he talk at all about Sweetback or 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 story of a three day pass and? Did you get any impression of sort of how he felt about? Uh, he was more talking to me about things that he would have liked me to produce hmm. or work on. Uh, he had something called the Champion, yes. which was the imagined uh, meeting of Bessie Smith and and uh, Jack Johnson. Right. Um, and he had a couple of other things that he 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 was very forward uh, pointed. He was he was thinking about what to do next and yes he talked about those things and he he had a lot of stories about his days in paris and uh you know the making of sweetback but it was much more about hey this is what we ought to do next that's very interesting that like throughout it all he was constantly yeah looking to the future yeah so shortly after your 2006 production of ain't supposed to die a natural death melvin launches into his final film uh confessions of an ex-doofus itchy-footed mother which you end up acting in so how did he how did you end up acting in his movie well i actually remember melvin talking to me about the project at his kitchen table and giving me some pages and describing what it was and uh, I said, this is amazing. Of course, I'd like to work with you. I'll work with you on any level at all. And he just started to make the film guerrilla style, just like he had made a sweetback, which means very little funding, lots of handmade stuff. He was making props in his apartment that were used <laughs> in the film. And every person working for Classical Theater of Harlem at that time that he liked was brought into the film as an actor. Every single one that he, that, that he was fond of wow. appeared in that film. And, uh, and, and the film was, was just kind of made organically on the fly. I think he was probably still working very much in the mode of Sweetback. And he was working without a lot of, without, without a lot of capitalization. But he was working with a great sense of joy, and he was working very fast. You know, he wanted to get it done. And I didn't know this at the time. Melvin had probably already received the the diagnosis that he he had Alzheimer's. Right. And and uh, he was really motivated. You know, working, cutting, editing, and um, you know, one day I went up to Dr. Jarecki's house in Rye, New York, and we filmed our scenes up there. Um, I played a seaman that was. An able seaman that was his buddy on some <laughs> some uh, boat that he later blew up or something. Um, it was very it was very chaotic and a lot of fun. <laughs> but was... but that it just came together around the kitchen table. But when he began working on it, he was working. He was like all in. And uh, before I even saw 
the film, which I think was done, I think it was premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. Yes. But before I even saw any rushes or anything, my, my own scenes in it, he was already working with a graphic artist uh, to, to turn the whole thing into a graphic novel. Yes. And that is a, really a great piece of work. Yeah, I, I own it. I have, yeah. I have my copy. Maybe more coherent than the film because, <laughs> you know, because of the great artwork in it. Yeah. Um, what, was he, what was he like as a director? Uh, he knew what he wanted. Uh, he was a lot of fun. He was very old school. The scene that we did uh, involved him you know, getting injured in an explosion, which meant on a hot day in, in the summer, he poured a, a bunch of ketchup over his head and, <laughs> and, uh, and then shot the scene. I mean, in, in all ways, you know, if Melvin, if, if this whole kind of content revolution that has been brought about by things like YouTube uh, had happened a little earlier, Melvin would have been, he would have been very big in that because he could, he could create things out of his imagination and put them on film very easily. Now, you, you brought up um, this fact that we were speaking about sort of off mic before this started. So there is a, um, a 2008 interview with the Red Bull Music Academy, which is incredibly extensive and was very helpful to my research. And it is the only time um, that I know of that he mentioned being diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and that's in 2008. And he mentions that he had just received the diagnosis. Now, you sort of speculated to this or spoke to this that the confessions of an ex-doofus itchy-footed mother, it goes into production the same year. It is based on an autobiographical play that he had made, Waltz of the Stork, um, mm-hmm. uh, an, uh, about uh, 30 years earlier. And I couldn't help but wonder if that impetus to make this autobiographical piece of work came from this diagnosis. Did he ever speak to, about that or is it just... The only thing I can remember is sometime around 2009 or 10. And I think the, the, the movie was already done. We hadn't gone to Paris with Sweetback yet. Uh, but I just remember him saying, Alfred, old age is kicking my ass. And that was the, we never talked about his health uh, beyond that. And, uh, and I, mean, I don't want to talk too much about his business, but he did want to get some things done while he still could. Yeah. And uh, itchy-footed doofus was one, and the other one was mounting Sweet Sweetback's badass song as an opera in Paris, which which came right on the heels of that. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Because shortly after uh, the film, uh, he launches into this um, staged opera of Sweet Sweetback's badass song, which... The 1971 album version of Sweetback, it says on the back, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Opera. So this was kind of always his vision or some part of him always felt that this was an operatic piece. So how did this piece come together and how did you get involved? I don't remember exactly how these events transpired, but uh, I worked with Melvin on a, a workshop he did at the Apollo where Sweetback was was done in there. They had a kind of a salon series, hmm. and he staged it as kind of the the songs on their feet. Uh, pretty faithful to the movie, by the way. And somehow that led to me meeting and talking to a gentleman named Greg Tate. And Greg Tate was working, wonderful writer, wonderful human being, and he was working with a musical outfit called Burnt Sugar. 
uh, Greg was kind of a conductor and and guitar player and cultural critic, just all around Renaissance man, deep thinker, great intellectual, uh, and a great artist. And I introduced Greg to Melvin at the old NAACP uh, studios on 96th Street, where we often would rehearse when we were overbooked at our other spots uptown. And they liked each other. And Greg had this relationship, uh, Mr. Tate had this relationship with Sans Air. And it was his idea to say, well, why doesn't Burnt Sugar, who's, who has played Sans Air in the past, why don't they do this property with Melvin and, and do it there as an opera, which is what Melvin had always conceived it to be. And thereby hangs a tale. Uh, the next people that came in to help us out were Brick Studio in Brooklyn, where we, where we rehearsed. And it was, I'd known Melvin for several years already, but seeing him rehearse with a full orchestra, well, not a full orchestra, but a 19-piece uh, <laughs> orchestra, you know, with, with just amazing sound, and and doing that music, which was the music of, uh, I don't think they were even called Earth, Wind, and Fire when they did the movie, but it was the people who, yeah, it was Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, whether they were called that yet or not, it's their music, which means it's multi-layered, phenomenal music played by musicians and not created on consoles and not made by machines, and there we were at the Brick Studios in Brooklyn with this 19-piece music set, and Melvin was able to conduct it and, you know, and create the music exactly as he wanted it, which was very close to the film. It, it wasn't close to the film. It was the film. It was, yeah. it was that music. And, uh, and we just found ourselves working together, Burnt Sugar, Melvin, uh, myself, Brick Studio, and, but Greg Tate was the hookup. That's why that happened. Melvin talks a lot about his uh, self-taught musical styles, his like number system for composing music. So did you watch him? Like, did he use that number system at all in these rehearsals? I never saw him use the number system, but I, the music was all in his head and it had to be exactly as he understood it in his head. <laughs> and the music was also, uh, it was material that he'd been performing for years um, you know, on, on his records in, right. in, uh, in various venues in Europe and in, in America. So he knew the music like the back of his hand. And he, it, it, we had the same experience doing Ain't Supposed to Die. It's like, you know, that's not that person. That's not how that's done. It's got to be like this. That's too many notes or that's taking too long. Or, you know, he didn't appreciate improvisational musicians when it came to his work. You know, he wanted to be a certain certain way. So I never saw the number system employed, but uh, I, I know I, I did work closely with him and William Spaceman on the play, and the musicians he was working with with Burnt Sugar were really top shelf and very motivated to to work with him and and get the music the way he wanted it. So was it, what were you feeling at the time, sort of like knowing that you're you know that this is this iconic property that has like so much written and so much talked about and and here you guys are bringing it back what, what were their conversations what were you feeling uh, are we talking about sweetback yeah or... sweetback sweetback um although it does apply to both i don't really remember how i felt about it other than 
as usual, you know, I was immersed in it, and um, you know, it was it was my life. Uh, I got up and did theater, and went to bed and got up and did theater. Um, I was, I probably didn't have a very uh, evolved sense of how historic or or uh, important it was. But I learned when we got there how important it was. In the making of it, all you're thinking of is, Jesus, how do we get this right? You know, this number is dying. You know, we haven't done the whole play. We haven't run through it yet. You're just involved in the making of it. You're immersed in the making of it. And like a lot of uh, the things that I've worked on, and probably a lot of the things that Melvin worked on, lots of moving pieces, fair amount of chaos in the creation of things, you know, lots of personality and, uh, you know, you know, lots of just kind of guerrilla filmmaking, guerrilla uh, rehearsal style. So that's what you're thinking of. But when we got to Songs of Air and we'd never run through it, and I just remember, I actually, I had a sense of horror that <laughs> this was going to occur and every ticket was sold, and 1,800 people were going to be there opening night. 1,800? 1,800, yeah. 1,800 people, I believe, was the capacity of oh that, of that theater, a, you know, giant theater in Paris. And uh, I remember the day that we opened, we were at the theater rehearsing, but we couldn't get a run-through done because there was this one scene where the guy playing John Amos's part from the film yeah. uh, was getting off a motorcycle, but we mimed everything. There was no motorcycle. So it was like, but we were using musicians from Burnt Sugar, so they weren't necessarily theater performers, and they cer certainly weren't mimes. They were, <laughs> they were musicians. And like, here we are. We're going to open tonight. We've never did a run-through, and Melvin is stopping rehearsal to demonstrate to this guy how to mime getting off a motorcycle. And another scene where Reggie Woods, who was, who was playing, you know, Sweetbacks, uh, you know, kind of his running buddy in the beginning, who doesn't stick up for him, yeah. that famous scene with the guy sitting on the toilet. Yeah, yeah, and Beetle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Reggie's playing Beetle. And we stop rehearsal again so that Melvin can get it right. That's not how you take a shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just put your pants on without wiping your ass. And, and these are the kind of things that were happening the day that we opened. And, and we never had gone through the play. So I, I, I remember a sense of horror and like almost hating Melvin that day. <laughs> because <laughs> could we just run this? And then there was this riding tonight, which was the scene where uh, the motorcycle gang scene. Yeah. Where he, 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 uh. He, he fucks the leader of the motorcycle gang, and that's how he gets out of a tough spot with the motorcycle guys. And the song was, he, he wrote a song for it so that we could do that scene because it didn't translate from the film at all. Right, yeah. And the song was Riding Tonight. And it was Riding Tonight, Riding Tonight for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and like most of the musicians from, from Burnt Sugar came out of the orchestra area to become bikers and to like do this kind of conga line around 
the, the person playing Melvin and the motorcycle chick that he was having sex with. And I'm saying, I, I remember saying that, I, I'm trying to help here. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to help deliver this show. Let's cut this number altogether. Or at least cut it to, it's like two minutes of riding tonight. Like after two minutes of riding tonight, I understand that we're riding tonight <laughs> and that we're riding tonight to kind of somewhat cover up the sex scene in the middle of this circle. And the trombone player is like, well, I think it's an important part of the play and I don't think it can be cut. And it's like, all right, I'm going back to the hotel <laughs> because obviously the trombone player. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your question, but... <laughs> We had a joke, uh, some of the actors, that like, I survived Sweet Sweetback's badass song in Paris. <laughs> but we opened, and we opened, and, and Melvin, who is beloved in Paris, yeah, 20-minute standing ovation. I'd never been part of anything like that before. We got through the whole thing. The music, of course, is top shelf. Yeah. It's top shelf, amazing American music, the best. And Burnt Sugar was the kind of uh, the kind of musical organization that could understand it and deliver it, and so I mean that's what happened in Paris, and I'll never forget it. But as far as having a you know an articulate answer for how I felt about the historiosity of where I, I I had no feeling, I just remember a sense of horror and a, a feeling that we would all just. <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. But you come from the theater. You know how this this, this happens at times. Uh, yeah, I, I totally get it. And I think that that's for people who aren't in the theater, who, who aren't in filmmaking. Um, a lot of times, you know, this, these great pieces of work and absolute genius pieces of work are literally being held together with gaff tape and gum. Yeah. And, like, that's how it happens. Yeah, sometimes that's, so, sometimes. that's, that's very true, you now, know. But it also sounds to me that this is something... Like you were talking about yourself, but I couldn't help but imagine that this is probably something you and Melvin had in common, which is you were saying, "Listen, I lived in the doing. You weren't thinking about the sentimentality or the or the um, the past of Sweetback. No, we you were in the present yeah. and what needed to be done. And it seems like Melvin lived his life that way. Would you agree? Yeah, he was a guy who was about doing stuff. Uh, one of the last things that he did was perform with parts of Burnt Sugar uh, with uh, a musical. I think it was a, maybe a quartet. I'm not exactly sure. But Spaceman was part of it. And some of the musicians from Burnt Sugar. And they called it Wid Laxative. W-I-D Laxative. And he was interviewed about that. He says, why do you call it Wid Laxative? And Melvin said, because we make shit happen. And he was all about, you know, making things happen. He, 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 was, he was a great intellect and had a sense of histor his historical... Uh, place in American theater and the importance of Sweetback and the importance of Ain't Supposed to Die. He certainly knew that, but he wasn't the kind of person. He he was one of the least pretentious uh, people I've ever met. So he wasn't the kind of person who wore that kind of thing on his sleeve. He He was about getting it done. He was about making shit happen. Where do you think that lack of pretension came from? He told stories about growing up in Chicago and uh, his father was a tailor, and he worked in the tailor shop. And he was so little that he had to stand on a box to, uh, to you know, to do business and take money and take in 
clothes from the various people who used the tailor shop. And uh, I think Melvin was someone who immersed himself in life from the time he was little, you know, before the concept of child labor laws, perhaps. I don't know. Um, But uh, he saw life from, from you know, a very active street level, not from the university, uh, but from the university of life. And uh, I think that's where that lack of pretension came from. And as I said before, Melvin really loved people. And you had to be at his memorial a couple of years ago. As you know, Melvin passed, and his memorial was at uh, at a, a private home in the East 60s. And people that had known Melvin going back to the 60s were at that memorial. Um, women who had been part of his life, filmmakers who had been part of his life, uh, people he knew, you know, from all walks of life. He, he, he had friends from all walks of life, not just, he wasn't just like a film theater guy. And uh, it, was the, it was one of the best days of that whole part of, of uh, my relationship with Melvin to see that he was, so, he was still alive and he was loved by uh, these people in, in that room. And uh, it, it's, it was because of the kind of person he was. What was... I'm getting emotional. Yeah. What do you think was that commonality of love towards Melvin that you felt in that room that day? Um, he made life more fun. Uh, he was genuine. Uh, he was not a bullshitter. He was not a manipulator, although that was one of the things I'd been warned about when I began to work with him, that he was a user. I I don't know what that means. That probably means he was someone who had to hustle a lot to raise money and get the kind of work done that he got done. Um, But, uh, yeah, I I think that that just came from the fact that he was fun to be with. He He was sincerely interested in you, not just the relationship that was about getting the play done, or getting the film in the can, but uh, your whole life, as I said, he's a, one of the only people I've, uh, persons I've ever talked to about my relationship with my own father. Uh, he just had that ability to, to to know that he actually cared about you. What is something of Melvin's that you feel lives on in you today, either personally or in your work? Everything we did together, and look, we're. We're in the home of a man that he introduced me to and who came to be a person who supported my work at Classical Theater of Harlem and beyond. So uh, every, every day that I'm alive, uh, the effects of my relationship with Melvin Van Peebles uh, are still alive with me because of the people I know, the work that I continue to do. Um, you were in Caligula, you know, the kind of the kind of stories and the kind of theatricality I like. Uh, and I, I think it's very much in the, in the vein of a, a play like uh, Ain't Supposed to Die, you know, theatrical, large, ambitious, maybe a little bit of a mess uh, is necessary to create that kind of scope. Uh, so, yeah, the, the fact that I work with Melvin and met people through Melvin is, is very much a part of my my career, and, but also my, my philosophy of living. You know, when you struggle to create things, when you don't think 
you are going to get it done or when you think people in the business are not looking at you or not, uh, you know, not receiving your ideas. But Melvin's attitude would have been, you know, no complaining, you know, create something and make yourself the star. That was his philosophy, you know. It's a good philosophy. It matches my philosophy. But uh, being at his memorial, it actually re-inspired me. And, uh, and as a result, I've been much more active as a writer with this film company, with my, with, with my method acting studio, all of that. Uh, because all of these people talking at Melvin's memorial uh, made me realize how he was a person who created his own power by, by being in control of telling the story and not relying on other people to accept it, not relying on gatekeepers, uh, you know, just going out there and, and getting attention and, and getting his work done. It's incredible. He has that line, um, a setback is just an opportunity in work clothes. Yeah. That I've heard him say. Yeah, he was at one of the benefits for the theater company I was running then, and he closed the benefit by singing Opportunity. <laughs> How would you describe Melvin Van Peebles' legacy? Well, um, I don't know if I'm qualified to describe it, but I'll just talk in in uh, terms of, of what he thought it to be. Um, and I think what a lot of people have thought it to be. Uh, the, the kind of work he did prefigured the wide popularity of spoken word and rap music. Uh, he, I think his importance, among other things, is that uh, Sweetback eludes the FBI and the LAPD and the entire machinery of, uh, of United States law, makes it to Mexico, and at the end there's a, words on the screen, watch out, he's coming back. Uh, you know, Sweetback wins. He doesn't get, he doesn't fail heroically. He's not a tragic figure whose significance is that he he dies. His significance is that he he eludes the the power of the United States white supremacy, if you want to call it that, and he's going to come back. And so, so I, I think that that's why I think that's why the Panthers wanted people to look at this film. I think that's uh, I think that's what has inspired people who look into his work and his music. You know, not just those two things we've been talking about, but all of the songs, all of the poems all of the literary work that he did uh, was a, a celebration of regular people um, winning and mattering, you know. Uh, when I worked with him, I discussed, well, what, what if we cut this song or what if we shorten this song? And that he wouldn't have because it was very important to him that all of those characters be represented. And he said, well, it's because they don't get represented. They haven't been in plays. They haven't been in movies. You know, the middle-aged lady who runs the bar, the guy who, he, this heroic guy who's just working in the, in the garment district, you know, pushing around a cart, uh, the, the guy who runs numbers, the dyke who 
you know, waits for her lover outside of the women's house of detention. He saw them all in a heroic light and, and, uh, and wanted to celebrate their humanity. So you couldn't cut the characters. And uh, I, I guess that's all I've got to say about that. If Melvin Van Peebles was here right now, what would you, what would you say to him? I wouldn't say anything. I'd hug him. That's beautiful. Um, I, uh, <laughs> that's, that's all the questions that I have. Um, Alfred, thank you. So- well, I want to say thank you to you, Aaron, um, because uh, I think that Melvin's work needs to be celebrated and it needs to be remembered. Uh, I did have a sense that Melvin felt, felt like uh, maybe he'd been passed over a little bit. And, uh, and you know, I, I don't want to read into it too deeply, but I think that his work is important enough so that it's going to be revisited and it's, it's just a part of American culture. It's just, it's a part of the American story that's very important and very, very uh, expressive and very specific to the life that he lived and the people that he knew while living it. And I'll just say that that production that we did is archived at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Maybe you go and see it as part of your research, but when people go to Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts and they make an appointment to watch that production that we did in Harlem, Melvin is alive again. And Ain't Supposed to Die, Natural Death is alive again. And we've come to a point of time in the American theater and the Broadway industry where I think it's very viable for that to come back and be a Broadway play again. But we never got it to Broadway. And I take responsibility for that. I guess, you know, what what we created wasn't compelling enough because I'm going to take responsibility for that. But we weren't able to do it. But it was a different industry then. We were told by an important producer who'd been involved in the original production that there's already a black play on Broadway. One. It was an August Wilson play. I think it was piano lesson. I don't, I don't remember except it was, but it was the the annual August Wilson play that made it Broadway, and this producer felt that that meant that that audience, uh, that niche of the American theater going populace, uh, uh, the the Broadway theater goers, were already served by this one August Wilson play, and uh, I think part of Melvin's legacy is that that isn't the case anymore. And he was a pioneer in opening up the theater and the film industry to, to more stories. Well, I, I say it on the show and um, I'll say it again here. I think Melvin Van Peebles is one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. I think his name should be among the greatest of Renaissance men and women in history. Mm. And, um, the whole reason that I did this series is out of a profound respect for his work and his legacy, which I think that we as an artistic community, both in film and in theater, are in so many ways living the results and the imagination of Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah, I um, agree with that. I agree with that. A very, very big contribution. And uh, I can feel him in this room just talking to you now. And that's an incredibly yeah, powerful Yeah, well, he's feeling. been in this room many times. I've had lunch with him in this room many times. <laughs> now, this is kind of, actually, this is kind of embarrassing. But did Melvin ever come to one of 
the shows that we did together? Because I, I have some opaque memory, but I was so ignorant. Melvin young. came to the opening of Man Who Ate Michael Rockefeller, and he came to the opening of Caligula at La Mama. And you may have seen him dancing on the stage uh, at the end of that show. Remember, the audience came up on stage. And, and we, <laughs> that was a crazy show. That was an amazing show. Yeah. You know, people the, still talk about that show. I bet. Yeah, about on social media, the people that were in in that that crazy show with the, oh yeah with the porn stars and the weightlifters and the uh, <laughs> you know the professional wrestlers. <laughs> it was a, it was an incredible experience. Um, I, re- I just remembered you like this kid who just got out, out of NYU. <laughs> I wasn't even out yet. I was still You're a student. Still, you were still a student when you did that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Uh, the school was not too happy about uh, me me stepping away from my studies to do that. But um, and but, walking around naked, oh yeah, uh, playing Jesus Christ. Yeah, <laughs> it, it may have been the first depiction of a naked Jesus, <laughs> which wasn't my idea, by the way. Uh, Aaron came up with that on his own. <laughs> oh man, you know, it, as I've done, I knew this going into this series because my appreciation of Melvin did not happen until later in life. Um, that I was pretty sure he came to these shows. He did. I'm, he I'm pretty sure that there was a picture of me and him somewhere, and yet I was too ignorant and I was too young to know the man I was standing next to, and here I have dedicated a huge portion I'll of my life. I'll take a look. You know, I, I don't save stuff. I'm not really good at that. <clears throat> I, I don't archive my own work very well at all, but <clears throat> I do have pictures of him at the after party of the opening night with the after party being what happened on the stage yeah. with the people who had come up for the, you know, to be in the play yeah. at the very end. So I'll go through my stuff and see if I can find that. Yeah. Because I, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, sta- he was there dancing right next to me and uh, I just, I didn't even know the, <laughs> the giant that I was, <laughs> yeah. that I was next to. Uh, um, one last thing. Yeah. I remember going up to, uh, the Bronx with Melvin to look at a theater. There was a derelict theater up there, and we had an idea that was it was being converted into a church. Mm. So it had lights and it had electrics, but it was you know have to chase the rats out of it kind of thing. Yeah, and people on the street, you know, people in, in, including uh, people who appeared to be homeless, immediately knew who Melvin was really? and came up to him and said thank you. And they were talking about the Melvin that they uh, had had experienced from the 70s. They were talking about, you know, seeing Sweetback and and uh, just knowing who he was as a cultural figure, as someone that they'd seen in, uh, you know, Time Magazine or uh, New York Magazine, those kinds of things. He was just very, very important to uh, not necessarily the, the theater elite. That really wasn't where uh, his uh, bread and butter was. But just people all over the place would walk up to Melvin and they would talk about how important the work he'd done was to them, how much it meant to them. That is incredible. I think that is a testament. That is, that is the sort of response that I would dream of as an artist rather than the, the institutional accolades. Yeah. Oh, he was all about that for sure. But, you know, it is my hope that, that uh, Melvin is uh, remembered both institutionally and um, in the hearts and minds of the of the people, because um, I think that that's what he uh, what he deserves. Well, Alfred, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you, follow you, find out more about your work? Uh, well, I guess you can uh, visit my website, but uh, 
you know, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> All right. We'll seek him out. And um, thank you to the listeners for joining us. And until next time, that's a wrap. Thank <laughs> you.